This is Policy Matters, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. And today, it won't surprise you to learn, we're focusing once again on the continuing crisis, the crisis that began with COVID-19. We don't know yet as the virus is mutating, but what we do know is that the causes of the crisis are mutating. It began with a medical crisis, moved rapidly into an economic crisis. It morphed then into a, a strategic uh, a crisis with China and now into a cultural crisis in the United States. How to make sense of all this? There's only one person I know who can uh, really get to the bottom of this. That's our good friend Brendan O'Neill from Spiked Online. Hello, Brendan. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. It has been an incredible year because we, we were one crisis ahead of you. We had the bushfires here, um, which, um, you know, whatever your analysis of it, it was it was quite something, you know, with smoke covering the major cities. Uh, and uh, and the Prime Minister and the government really flat out dealing with that and then straight into COVID-19 and on and on and on. It just is what comes next. It's been a very unpredictable year. It has been a very unpredictable year. It's it's one, as you say, it's one crisis after another. I, I like your description of the crisis mutating. It does feel like that. And I think the reason that's a, a useful way of putting it is because I think there's something underlying all of this, which explains why everything then becomes a crisis. So, for example, COVID-19 was a very serious public health challenge, but it didn't necessarily have to become this awful crisis that would expose all the fault lines in, you know, in the culture wars, uh, political conflict, global tension. But but it did because I think there are underlying problems and issues and tensions and disagreements that we don't have out often enough. And for some reason, COVID-19 seems to have been the catalyst for bringing a lot of that to the surface. And, and now we're seeing uh, an explosion in cultural tensions in particular which I think will have long-lasting impact yeah I mean you and I I think both have kicked back against that word crisis it's been overused up to now but it's hard to deny that what we're going through now is uh, you know it's it's not an overstatement to call it a crisis right yeah uh, absolutely no and it's the thing I always think about crisis is that crisis sounds like a bad word but it it really it really means kind of a crossroads. Crisis also presents opportunity. There's always an opportunity to improve things, to make life better. The problem, I think, with the, with the period in which COVID-19 hit us is that firstly, lots of countries were medically ill-prepared. They didn't have the right equipment. But I think that's, uh, that's probably a smaller issue than the fact that we were morally ill-prepared. We were morally ill-prepared to be able to deal with a health crisis, to be able to respond to it rationally, to be able to basically hold ourselves together. So instead, all the kind of apocalyptic trends kicked in very quickly. So this was very quickly presented as a plague, as a disaster, as something that humanity would not be able to cope with. And it's very striking. If you look back at the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, which was far worse, or the flu epidemics of the late 1960s, there wasn't the same 
moral response. There wasn't the same sense of doom. There wasn't the same sense that this is this is a, a sign of end times. Things were dealt with much more rationally and and reasonably. I mean, for example, as many people have pointed out in recent weeks. Woodstock took place in during a pandemic. Woodstock dr- took place during one of the terrible flu pandemics of the late 1960s. Uh, and imagine having a Woodstock-style event now. It, it just wouldn't happen because our response was to think, this is a terrible situation which we can't cope with. We have to shut everything down. And the apocalyptic imagination has to kick in. And, and that makes it more difficult to have a reasonable assessment of what's actually going on. Yeah, and I'm not critical of the Australian government. I mean, far from it. I think that they handled this thing very well, given the information they had. But uh, yeah. back in February and March, there was scant information about what this virus was, actually. I mean, it could have been some zombie-causing mutation that had escaped from a lab. Maybe it did escape from the lab. But uh, they had no idea, really, and they had to go with the so-called experts, and the experts at that stage uh, were, were dominated by the voices from Imperial College London. Uh, whose numbers, when you look at them now, were way out of proportion, like by a factor of 10 or 20. You know, I mean, we never were dealing with the sort of crisis they, 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 they indicated, but we are in this position these days where we, we're so reliant on experts, right? Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, experts, they don't sit above society in the way that some people imagine that they do. They are influenced and shaped by the trends that exist in society and one of the most one of the key trends of our time is is the ideology of the worst case scenario so we we have a tendency the political elites in particular have a tendency to go for the worst case scenario when they're thinking about things that might happen you know we've seen this with so many issues in recent years um Global warming is the perfect example. Global, global uh, environmental problems, as I prefer to, to, to call them, they're not seen as simply problems that could be dealt with strategically or with investment and um, uh, technology and so on. They're seen as symbols of mankind's hubris and, and some kind of punishment from nature. So there's always this worst case outlook always kicks in and it's been going on for quite a long time you know in the 1980s Susan Sontag wrote an uh, an essay about the AIDS crisis and she said that we live in an era of apocalypse from now on and where everything there's almost this malarial switching from one apocalypse to the another to to the next and it's and they come and go like waves of fever you know, the swine flu, bird flu, the AIDS crisis itself, which of course was very serious, global warming. And you do sometimes wonder how ordinary people, um, how they view society or how they understand their own position in society. If society is seen as uh, this fragile thing, which just lapses from one disaster to another, lapses from one apocalypse to another, it's, it's a very exhausting ideology. It's a very exhausting outlook. And I think it really grates against mankind's ability to exercise reason and to think carefully about what's the best course of action. So that's why when COVID-19 broke, um, we had experts who gave us the worst case figures and a political class who were rather too swift to embrace those figures. And we've ended up, I think, in a very, very difficult situation as a result of that. 
And um, uh, of course, building into that is this uh, aversion to risk that we have that you've written about quite frequently. Uh, Frank Freedy has written brilliantly about in in books and on on Spiked Online. We just don't seem to accept any risk. And I think in in Australia, I don't know if it's true in Britain, but coming out of this, now that we seem to have contained the virus quite well, you know, no community transmissions whatsoever in New South Wales for more than a week now. Um, and yet there's a reluctance to unlock the economy. You know, you can mm. still... There are still restrictions on the number of people that can attend a funeral here, and yet there's no known cases of people out there with the virus. Why is this? Why, why are we so frightened of just letting go? I think that's one of the key questions, and it's driving me a bit mad. It has been driving me a bit mad over the past few weeks. And if you look at the UK, the UK, we've been in lockdown now for more than 10 weeks. We were told it would last for three weeks. Um, it's it's completely bizarre. People aren't going to funerals. People aren't allowed to... You're not allowed to meet in groups of larger than six, unless you're a Black Lives Matter protester, in which case you can meet in groups of thousands and, and you won't get any criticism from the media. So it, it's a very strange moment. It's a very strange time. And I think the risk aversion thing, I think, is a, is key to a lot of this. And I think what we've lost sight of is that life is full of risk. Every single day, I mean, risks tend to be exaggerated very often, but it is true that life is a risky business and, and we take risks every time we walk out the front door. And we, you know, historically we've accepted that and we've done everything we can to negate the risk, but we've accepted that risk is there and we've accepted that it is part and parcel of living in a big city or a small town or just, you know, <laughs> in the world itself. You know, for example, driving right we have motorways we have roads we have fast cars and we know that many many people die in road accidents every single year but as a society we've decided that driving is an incredibly important thing it's a wonderful thing it gets you from a to b faster than earlier generations were able to do and a little bit of risk is acceptable for the benefits that that brings. Now imagine if we decided to shut down all roads because there was a year with a particularly high number of road accidents, it would be seen as completely deranged. But what we've done with COVID-19, even though we now know that it impacts most harshly on older people and people with underlying conditions, we've shut down the whole of society, we've put healthy people under house arrest, we've put people under the age of 40 We've told them to stay at home, to stop working, stop producing, stop teaching. Um, and that is going to cause an economic disaster. And it's out of proportion to what we do now know about COVID-19, which is that it's more serious for older people than it is for younger people. So our unwillingness to live with risk, our unwillingness to take risks, I think, firstly, life without risk is really not worth living you know who wants to who wants to live in a straitjacket in a cushioned room that's not a good life and secondly i think we're now reaching this a situation where the precautionary principle better safe than sorry is proving to be actually quite a reckless and dangerous ideology which is going to cause long-term economic and health consequences I think the economic risks of, of, of people becoming risk-averse are, are really serious. I mean, the, the economy only thrives through people who are prepared to take risks with the expectation of reward at the end of it. You know, once people sit in a corner and wrap themselves up in glab wrap, you know, I mean, it, it's all over. So I don't know how we're going to get people out there taking risks if government is not prepared to set an example of this. 
Absolutely. And, um, you know, you, you use the example of the bushfires uh, and people around the world, including here in the UK, we watched the firefighters in that. And, and a lot of people thought to themselves, you know, thank God there are people who take risks, who, who put their life on the line in order to save other people, in order to preserve property and in order to get life back to normal. So risk taking is absolutely essential to a civilized society. And um, if we demean risk-taking or if we treat risk-taking as a bad thing, a reckless thing, a stupid thing, we're really undermining all the everything that a civilized society needs in order to function. People take risks at work, people take risks in um, emergency services, and daily life involves its own little risks that people learn how to negotiate or confront in one way or another. So this turn against risk, this this bizarre notion that you can eliminate risk and you can have a perfectly risk-free life it's such a delusion but it's a delusion with severe consequences because I think particularly it sends the message to young people in particular that they should expect to go through life without experiencing any um, turmoil which is unrealistic and would be also undesirable and on a society-wide level it really negates against all the things that society needs in order to be a good society, which is bravery, daring, um, heroism, uh, selflessness. All those qualities are so essential to the good society and the good life. And I think our risk-averse culture just undermines all of them. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, so before we move on to the, 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 the Black Lives Matter movement, as it were, Let's look at the people who are part of this, the younger people, the millennials, uh, um, and so forth. Now, the, these are kids that were brought up or brought up as kids um, in a very risk-averse culture by parents who thought they were doing the right thing. And uh, I know Frank Faridi has written um, with, with great insight into how this has affected universities and made kids you know, seek out safe spaces and everything. Um, are we now seeing the consequences of this, you know, well-intentioned but completely misguided parenting? I think we are. I think in terms of um, overprotective parenting, um, an education system that is very often devoted to protecting kids' self-esteem rather than expanding their minds, and basically a culture, particularly pop popular culture, which constantly sends the message that other words, other people's words can hurt you. Other people's ideas are dangerous. Be careful everywhere you go. Don't take risks. Don't go outside on your own if you're a kid. All those kinds of things. I think we are seeing the consequences of that now in a generation that is um, risk averse, uh, has a sense of itself as being constantly under threat, and which is unwilling to listen to alternative alternative ideas or people who disagree with them. It's given rise to this kind of cushioned, censorious, anti-risk culture among young adults, which I think will have long-term consequences for society more broadly. It's like, you know, one of the things that people always recognised is that it, it was good for kids to go outside, get dirty, roll around in things they shouldn't be rolling around in, eat things they shouldn't be eating, because all of that built up the immune system. It made them physically sturdier that was always the way in which kids were approached in a physical sense you know get out of the house and don't come back for three or four hours that's what my mother would say to me and my brothers you know these days kids aren't allowed out in our day we weren't allowed in we were just in summer holidays you would be kicked out for the whole day and you had to fend for yourself but but that as well as being a physical 
that as well as being physically important that is intellectually important and especially as kids get older and they hit their teens and they become young adults it's just as important to expose them to difficult ideas as it was to expose them to the outdoors world when they were kids and now neither of those things happen and we end up with young adults who are cautious about other people cautious about their own surroundings and incredibly hostile to those who hold difficult ideas which they presume will hurt them if they hear them yeah and then this great feeling of victimhood that you know you've bullied me you've hurt me and um i think we've seen that uh, you know this this uh, couple last couple of weeks um notably in the u.s but spreading to britain with this black lives matter movement this idea that you know uh you know the tragic death of of george floyd floyd in um in minneapolis is some you know it's not just one that again it's um somebody trying to phone me it's not just one um sad incident it's not one tragic incident of one one policeman perhaps using excessive force it's indicative of some horrible campaign against the whole black race Yes, absolutely. And that's the thing I find most disturbing about the response. Um, it's like we're witnessing the globalization of victim culture. And um, so many people want to have a part of um, the oppressive experience. And so I think people are embracing George, the, the brutal killing of George Floyd as symbolic, not only of how horrible modern America is in their eyes, but also symbolic of their own sense of fragility and their own sense of suffering. So what we've seen in the UK, for example, are, you know, very middle class black youths um, from Oxford, for example, who are part of the Rhodes Must Fall movement in Oxford, which wants to remove a statue of Cecil Rhodes. So these are, you know, privileged kids at one of the best universities on earth who talk about the George Floyd killing as as um, hurting them and making them feel unsafe and making them feel that they could be killed at any moment. And it, that's just unrealistic. So there's a lot of vicarious victimhood in relation to this, where people are um, projecting their own sense of fragility onto what happened to George Floyd, which I find really unappetizing. But I think the difficulty with the current moment is I think we're witnessing a bit of an overlap. We're, we're witnessing an overlap between the old racial tensions in America, um, some of which the the residue of them are still there um, in terms of, you know, America has an extraordinary amount of community segregation, for example. You can go to some areas that are 100% black and other areas that are 100% white, which is very unusual. We certainly don't have those kinds of things in the UK. Okay, but but and large, largely self-imposed, right? This is not, it's not being enforced by the authorities. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So this is not a, a apartheid or it's not a, a top-down um, systematic um, uh, demand. It's a kind of hangover and it, it kind of, it, and it's a strange phenomenon in the US. And, you know, they have certain issues with criminal justice and they have certain issues with poverty and unemployment, which have been exacerbated by the pandemic. So they have all these things. And I think some of the protest is probably an echo of that or a continuation of that. But it's overlapping with something which is much more powerful and much more worrying, which is the politics of identity. And um, the politics of particularly this new racialism, which sees black people as uh, permanent victims 
and white people, all white people, as complicit in racism and complicit in the crimes of history and as the beneficiaries of slavery and the beneficiaries of colonialism. And it's this very divisive, deeply destructive form of politics, which I think has nothing whatsoever in common with Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks or any of the other stuff that happened in the 50s and 60s. No, no, that's right. And and just to illustrate... um you know the, the confused uh, situation they're in. Let me let me play you one one brief clip from an interview uh, with a woman of color. I think we we are supposed to to call her that. Uh, who's a, a you know a small business woman and let's, whose business was looted. Have a listen to what she's got to say. You may have heard this already. The problem that bothers me. You says Black Lives Matter. I work here part time. Plus, I'm a part owner of this store. You said Black Lives Matter. Why don't you choke me? I'm black. Tell him, sister. Look what you did to my store. Tell him, sister. Look. Look what you did to my store. Tell him, sister. That's right, because I got their back. These are my dudes right here. Good men. Look at the things you've done. Good men. Look. But Black Lives Matter. We've been here all night cleaning up. All night cleaning. Because you got black people standing right here with them. Black Tell people. me That's right. black lives matter. Exactly. You lied. You wanted to loot in the store. You needed money. Get a job like I do. Stop stealing. This is the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean it's um it's it's compelling, isn't it? The, the woman who's who you can't see the pictures, of course, is being radio in essence. But you know she's standing outside a, a tra- her store's being trashed. There's rubbish on the pavement. Her whole livelihood has gone up in flames. Yeah, I've I've seen that clip, and I think that that woman is is heroic, in fact, for saying what she did. And I've seen quite a few videos now of um, black people in the U.S. Um, chastising others, chastising the looters. Um, and often chastising young white people. There's been a few videos doing the rounds of um, a black guy in Kentucky and uh, a, a black woman in another part of the US who were saying to these young white kids who looked, you know, pretty middle class, telling them to go away, stop throwing bricks, stop destroying our communities. So what's fascinating about what's happening in America at the moment is the is the racial and class makeup of some of these protests of course there are loads and loads of um black protesters and there are loads of black rioters and there are loads of black looters and and people have to be honest about that and we have to be able to talk about that quite frankly and and ask questions why does it happen what can be done to resolve it but there's a new component too which is self-loathing white liberals and self-loathing white lefties now there's a long history in the u.s of white people offering solidarity to civil rights movements. You know, there was a great influx of Jewish students from the north of America to the American South during the civil rights movement, and they helped with the right to vote and everything else. So there's always been that kind of solidarity, but this is something different. This is a new form of self-loathing which sees white people as bad, and you absolve yourselves of your whiteness you absolve yourselves of the sin of being born white by engaging in this form of behavior it's almost like a a a penitential act and you, you know whiteness is now seen as like a moral defect and we've had the archbishop of canterbury this week calling on white christians to repent their prejudices we've had nigella lawson um you know the high priestess of of decent society in london 
um, saying that all white people are complicit in racism. We've seen videos of white people on their knees in America in front of black people and begging for their forgiveness. So there's something, there's a weird pathology has emerged, a kind of um, anti-whiteness, which I think is also a kind of anti-Americanism. And and that part of the protests and riots, I think, is the worst. And it's the thing that is really worth keeping an eye on and critiquing. It's got all the manifestations of a religious cult. Yeah. Um, and uh, quite strange and quite frightening to see presumably educated people behave like that. Um, yeah. Things are worse than I thought they were, Brendan. I mean, we, we've been concerned for a long time about identity politics uh, and everything that that brings about. But this has just got really weird, don't you think? It has gone really weird. I think we're witnessing... I think there are two, there are a number of things at play. I think um, the lockdown and the pandemic probably helped to explain the intensity of some of the protests and the intensity of some of the riots in the sense that, you know, if you lock people down for a very long time, it, it stores up all this kind of crazy energy. And so I think some of it is, re- is a response to that. But then I think the, po- the politics of it and the politics of those who who claim to speak for the protesters or the politics of those who are writing about it every single day in the liberal media in particular, that is the thing I find most worrying. And it is the politics of identity. It is very divisive. It's very destructive. It's important to understand where this politics comes from. It comes from the academy. It comes from the political class. In the US, it comes from the East Coast. It comes from... It mostly comes from white liberals. And it is this, and also black liberals, of course, too, it, it is this view of America as as a spoiled republic, uh, you know, with the original sin of slavery. And this very anti-American outlook has taken hold in elite circles, among the privileged elites in the US and in other countries. You guys have this in Australia, too, with the kind of the self-flagellation that takes place among Australian academics or Australian small L liberals um, and and we have it in the UK enormously as well this kind of this view of Britain as just this litany of hatred and racism and imperialism and colonialism no understanding of the changes that have been made in history the progressive leaps forward the fact that life has improved enormously for almost all people you know I keep hearing people say um, the George Floyd uprising in america reveals that america is built on slavery and colonialism and genocide and i want to say no it's not it's built on the american revolution the war for independence the civil war which was literally a war to end slavery um the civil rights movement the suffragettes capitalism progress the invention of the car free speech you don't hear those things anymore because we are encouraged to have this nihilistic loathing of our own society's history and i think a lot of the explosion on the streets is is a physical manifestation of those kind of rotten ideas that have been growing in academic life and public life for quite a long time we, we should talk about donald trump here who is the focus of so much anger um and look he wasn't the one he wasn't there in that street in minneapolis with his knee on some poor guy's throat but he's you know clearly in the minds of the left he's to blame for this um, but I think we do need to talk about Trump's limitations here. I mean, everybody cheered when he came to drain the swamp and, and try and bring some sense of reality back to government. But he's got to the point where he's, he, he's not just that he enrages the left, he seems to enjoy enraging them. 
and I'm not sure that that's the way to build, you know, a strong civic society to actually fuel this, what seems to me probably um, the worst um, division in US society since the Civil War. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't think he's handling this well at all. I mean, it's it's interesting that it, it so swiftly became an anti-Trump outlook you know the left kind of the left can only understand things now in a quite narrow way and one of the ways they do that is is just by blaming Trump for everything so so the left rushed to turn it into a Trump bashing thing but then Trump just didn't respond well at all and I sometimes think if I could just have five minutes advising Trump and giving him giving him some tips you know he should have just yeah, but you could always try. You know, he he should have just very clearly condemned what happened to George Floyd. He should have very clearly condemned the police, the police officer's behavior. He should have said this kind of behavior is unacceptable in a free republic like America. Um, he and he should have said that the police, police who do this will be punished. And when the riots started and the looting started and the protests started, I think it was right for him to say, look, we need we need law to, law and order. But then to say, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, it, it it's crass and it doesn't work. And I think it turns off not only the people who hate Trump because they hate him anyway. I think it also turns off a lot of the decent working class people who voted for Trump because they were so sick of the old Hillary style establishment. And I'm, I think he might lose some of those people too. But, but the thing is, the key issue for Trump, and this is why the American election later this year will be so interesting and I think um, possibly quite destabilizing, is that the issue with Trump is that he is the beneficiary of people's perfectly legitimate sense of exhaustion with the old technocratic elites who became increasingly undemocratic, increasingly neoliberal in, in a bad way, turned against ordinary working people, turned against communities, it, it tried constantly to instill their superior cultural values over everyone else's cultural values. This has been happening in Western societies for a few decades now, and the Brexit revolt and the Trump vote and even the surprise Scott Morrison victory and various populist upheavals across Europe are such a clear response uh, reaction against that. But I think Trump's problem is that he hasn't been able to turn the anti-establishment um, fervor that got him into the White House into something more pro positive, something more pro-America, something that is his worldview rather than just um, being anti the worldview of the old establishment. And I think that failing is going to make things difficult for him, I think, in the presidential election. Although the one positive for him is is the up, he's up against Joe Biden, who strikes me as an increasingly unpredictable and strange political figure. Yeah, I mean, I, his latest performances on the media are very, very... Um not just poor, but catastrophic of them, I would have thought. Um, you know, I mean, we, we know not to, to go too far on a limb predicting these things, but it, it's far from the, you know, everybody turning on Trump narrative that you'd think if you read the New York Times, is it? Yeah, I think that that's one of the difficult things uh, in, in relation to the US. I certainly have this difficulty in working out exactly what's going on and exactly what people are thinking. I mean, opinion polls in the modern period are notoriously unreliable. 
Uh, they didn't predict any of the big political quakes of recent times, you know, and it makes perfect sense why they didn't, because when you live in a culture which is quite stifling and politically correct and there's one right way to think and if you don't think it you're an evil person in that kind of climate people often keep their views to themselves they don't say what they think to pollsters and they don't sometimes don't say what they think in public which is which is bad so uh, what i struggle with in the us right now when i'm reading about it is working out what are people thinking what's really going on here because we tend to get American news filtered to us through kind of the dominant uh, liberal media apparatus, which is just not favorable to Trump at all. And it can be hard to work out what is the truth of public opinion, what is the truth of Trump's standing, how badly did he really handle COVID-19, or was a lot of that highly politicized? It can be... Uh, you know, Trump talks a lot about fake news, which is a slightly crass way of understanding the problem we face. But there is a problem of it, it, it becoming increasingly difficult to work out the truth in a time in which so much is propaganda and so much is, is the kind of anger of the old establishments who feel that things are out of their control. So I find it hard to work out what American people are Yeah, I, I found it quite troubling the way that the sort of climate wars morphed almost um, you know seamlessly into uh, science arguments about politicized science arguments about COVID-19 you know which which particular virus uh, which particular antidote do you like you know it, it depends on political color more than uh, your political persuasion more than um, the science it seems to me but you know we are seeing this in real time this complete disintegration of the scientific method and any sort of confidence we once had in it i think that's one of the things we we will have to have a reckoning with once this is over because uh, science has become so um polluted to, to use an apt word and um i think it's partly the fault of politicians because politicians the more they feel their own moral and political authority um, slipping away, they more they the more they turn to scientific or medical experts to to justify policy, and so when you deploy science in a politicized way, you tend to make people skeptical of science, or or you pollute the scientific method itself. Right? If you look at the climate change issue, is the perfect example of this. If you know institutions and politicians around the world are constantly looking for proof that global warming is is happening at an alarming rate, science will bend itself towards making that discovery. And the scepticism that is absolutely essential to science will be um, suppressed because people know that the reports that politicians want and the thing that will make you a famous scientist is saying the right thing on climate. I think in relation to COVID-19, that kind of embrace of the worst case outlook was quite apparent early on. It certainly became more apparent the more we got to know about the disease. And I think we will have to, at some point, go back to a society that is more democratic, which is run by politicians who are actually in control. And expertise needs to know its place. You know, expertise is incredibly important. Science is incredibly important. Society couldn't function without these things. But in the political realm, when it comes to deciding what is best for our society, that has got to be a democratic discussion. And it's got to be one that is led by political leaders who know how to lead. It can't be something that Neil Ferguson decides by coming up with some pie charts. It can't be something that climate scientists decide. 
because they've found a new block of ice floating away somewhere in the North Pole. It's got to be something that's more open, democratic and driven by the public good rather than by scary science. Let's make some predictions now. So we're going to go into a recession. I mean, that's obviously the case. Um, the Australian Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, has, has declared one this week. Um, now, is that going to actually, you know, bring some sanity back into the debate? Are we going to start focusing on things that really matter, like jobs and livelihoods and hope and, and expectations about a better future? Is that going to silence this um, madness on the left or are they going to find some some other cause to keep fighting? See, that's the million-dollar question, and I've been asking myself that question for the past three months. Um, the optimist in me thinks that because we're living through a pretty serious crisis, firstly a health crisis and now an economic crisis, that people's attention will be focused and we will start to talk about things that actually matter. You know, we will stop talking about what bathroom trans people can use and what words you can are allowed to say and all that other nonsense that has dominated um, political discourse for so long. And we'll start talking about real things. But the pessimist in me, and this has really been ramped up by the events of the past week in terms of Black Lives Matter and what's happening in the US and in the UK and Australia too, it looks to me like um, we could possibly see an exacerbation of that politics. And uh, I think the fact that the, you know, the first large political response to the pandemic has been identity politics. It has been this pathologization of whiteness. It has been this, this um, in, in, kind of exacerbation of the culture war outlook. That's been the first big major political response to the pandemic. And that worries me enormously because I think there are, I think it seems like the kind of PC left and the new elites and all those people who we thought had been pretty well bruised by Brexit and Trump and the victory of liberals in Australia and various other events, they're not going away anytime soon. And if anything, they could become more um, hysterical and more censorious than they were before, precisely because they recognise their authority ebbing away. So I think those of us who believe in reason and freedom and democracy and openness and free trade and all those other things still have a big fight on our hands. Brendan, Australia is surviving pretty well on the COVID crisis um, to a large extent because it's locked down its borders. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're not allowing international travellers in here. But if there was one reason why I might go and petition the the immigration minister to relax that would be allowed to get you back into this country and talking to us again thank thank you so much for joining us and um and uh, i think you have plans to come uh, later in the year if you can i hope so um I, I i might be coming in december but i can't wait to come back to australia australia as you know nick is one of my favorite places in the world it's full of reasonable good people so i will be back we'd love to have you thank you brendan that was Brendan O'Neill from Spiked Online in London joining us for Policy Matters. And if you like this podcast, then do all the right things. Give us five stars and write nice things about us. Tell all your friends. I'm not all sure what else we're supposed to do, but please um, do that. And if you want to support our work, then the best way you can do that is be by becoming a subscriber to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. And you can find all the information about that on our website, menziesrc.org, menziesrc Org. Thank you for joining us. I'm Nick Cater and we'll be bringing you another one of these podcasts very shortly. Bye.